The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, discuss the weird Frankenstein military Russian vehicles that seem to be heading for the front lines, and we hear from a Ukrainian in Poland on the experience of Ukrainian refugees in the country. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 7th of March, one year and 11 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, former commander of the 1st Royal Tank Regiment Hamish de Bretton-Gordon, and our guest is Daria Krishtenko, the Ukrainian in Poland who works with Ukrainian refugees for Care International. I started by asking Joe for the latest updates from the front lines. Yeah, let's start with Bakhmut and it's it's really hard at the moment the the fog of war we we so frequently talk about is really clouding the goings on of what is going on in this kind of town in the Donetsk region which has been kind of the central focus and is now the single longest uh, battle between Russia and Ukraine and it's the single longest battle either of them have fought since the second world war so it's really quite substantial what's going on there but it because of that it's tricky to get an accurate gauge of what is really going on. But this is what we've heard from kind of our public sources most recently. So Ukraine's top generals and military commanders have vowed to keep defending uh, Bakhmut, which is a salt mining city in the Donetsk region of the Donbass. In his nightly address, Vladimir Zelensky made reference to this, and he said he had held discussions with the uh, with his top people about the going, what's going on in Bakhmut, and they, they told him not to withdraw and instead to continue bolstering the city's defences. And here is what he said in his uh, in his overnight address. I'll, I'll quote, The command unanimously supported this position. There was no other positions. I told the commander-in-chief to find the appropriate forces to help our guys in Bakhmut. So this statement does counter what... What we've heard recently is from mainly the Institute of the Study of Warfare, which is a US-based think tank out of Washington, and they kind of alluded to the idea of Ukraine carrying out a tactical withdrawal. Not a full withdrawal, but they, they're potentially moving their front line in Bakhmut to somewhere else. It kind of solidifies their, uh, solidify their position and better help them defend but as i've said a few times now on the podcast i don't think this is the view of ukraine itself so despite how hard it is for their troops in bakhmut they believe that that pain is worth enduring because they're inflicting more suffering on the attack attacking russian forces and so because of this it's like the mixed messaging is really impossible to tell what is actually going on but i i i, I do get the sense there's a feeling that ukraine really wants to hold on to bakhmut it's become overly symbolic despite having very little strategic value in terms of the future war in the Donbass and the wider wider Ukraine. And I I just get the sense that when you speak to kind of Ukrainians about Bakhmut, they really do feel that what they are doing to Russia in degrading the Russian forces is actually really worthwhile and that they, they believe that it is genuinely hamstringing Russia keeping them pinned down, bogged down to one position and essentially shows the world that their um that their their Russian offensive really isn't made or cracked up to what we, we, we kind of expected. Um and of course the further Ukraine can degrade Russian forces, whether it be in Bakhmut, Volodar, which we'll go on to later, that gives them a better chance when they eventually launch their own counter-offensives. So there is obviously a potential that what President Zelensky's been saying, it could be a misinformation ploy, but um, that's not kind of the feeling that I'm getting when speaking to Ukrainians. One other uh, kind of thing to mention is 
what Ukraine is doing in holding its position in Bakhmut, keep on defending, goes against sort of advice from the US and, and, and the West in general. They So when, when Solidar fell near Bakhmut, uh, the Americans kind of sent a message saying, look, it doesn't, like, letting go of Bakhmut, despite you fighting so hard for it, is not a loss. It's not a defeat for you. It won't put you in sort of strategic jeopardy. And actually, Lloyd Austin, the US Defence Secretary, made uh, made this point again yesterday in public. He said the city had more symbolic value than than a strategic one. And then Britain's Ministry of Defence this morning, in its daily intelligence briefing on Twitter, said the battle for Bakhmut continues to degrade both sides' uh, capabilities. So it kind of talks to what we're speaking to there in degrading Russia. But of course, it is actually hurting Ukrainian forces too. But they are probably better supplied than Russia, thanks to all their Western backers. So the MOD says Ukraine has lightly stabilised its defensive perimeter following reported Russian advances in the north of Bakhmut. And then I'd like to point out sort of our reporting, and especially that of Verity Bowman, who interviewed a fighter, a Ukrainian fighter, recently injured while defending the city. So Vladislav, he basically confirmed that Ukraine was virtually encircled with Russian forces in dominant positions on all three sides. And that's... Um, that's not something the Ukrainians would admit lightly, so it's good to actually have that from an insider. Then I'd note another another few lines that we carried in our piece in today's paper about Bakhmut and the wider war. Uh, the Kiev Independent outlet has a had a fantastic report, which we referenced about just how difficult it is for Ukraine on the front line. They were speaking to soldiers there. The outlet reported that mortar men are running out of ammunition and being forced to use weapons dating back to the Second World War. Reconnaissance units no longer have enough drones to carry out their missions because of losses sustained on the battlefield. And then there are actually quite a few complaints that the ground efforts of Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut aren't being adequately, adequate, adequately supported by artillery or infantry fighting vehicles. So um, you can only guess because of the pressure being put on the lone supply road into into Bakhmut, that's that's making it very difficult for for Ukraine to get supplies in. But it's also it's 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 a tricky one of them being so close to the fighting that is artillery going to work and can you get infantry fighting vehicles in? Probably not. So then yeah, it's it's, it's not a great picture for the Ukrainians but they, they continue fighting on there. So one Combat Maddock, interviewed by the Kiev Independent, he arrived in Bakhmut with a 500-strong battalion in December. He says that battalion is now down to 150 men. So, that's, so both sides are taking significant losses, uh, but the lion's share are being suffered by Russia. And it's believed that Russia is taking between 7 to 5 to 1 in terms of casualty rate compared to every Russian casualty. For five Russian casualties, you get one Ukrainian. In Bakhmut is the current sort of estimate being touted by Ukrainians. And then the Russians have actually also kind of weighed in on their on the on the war in Bakhmut. And in, in by Russia I mean Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister. He has basically made clear that Bakhmut would give Russia's armed forces a springboard for future attacks in the Donbass. Uh, so Shoigu said the city is an important hub for defending Ukrainian troops in the Donbass, taking it under control will allow further offensive actions to be conducted deep into Ukraine's defensive lines. Not sure I quite agree with that, and um, I don't think many kind of actual genuine experts would agree with that. So capturing Bakhmut would give Russia its first sort of significant battlefield victory in Ukraine since last summer, but I reference back to an institute in the study of war report that was recently put out, and that suggested that Russia had sustained such losses in trying to capture Bakhmut that its forces would unlikely be capable to launch anything considered serious in an attempt to further move on and keep keep that offensive moving on. And then there's a, there's some interesting reporting out of Volodar, which is a town near closer to Donetsk, which is the biggest city in Donetsk, but only about 100 miles or so from Bakhmut. And what we're hearing from Ukrainian officials is that senior Russian officers and commanders have actually mutinied on the battlefields of eastern Ukraine in a in a rebellion there um so there are there are many reports that say as many as 300 marines a day from russia's 155th brigade which is considered an elite fighting force are being killed every day last 
being killed every day while trying to capture the Ladar. Russia is also believed to have lost at least 130 tanks and armor personnel carriers. We've we've covered that quite consistently during the re- a recent three week battle to capture Vladar, and it's also worth saying that Ukraine is very much still in control of Vladar. And this is this is what a Ukrainian military uh, official had to say: the leaders of the brigade and senior officers are refusing to proceed with a new senseless attack as demanded by their unskilled commanders, to storm well-defended Ukrainian positions with little protection or preparation. So um, maybe it is starting to dawn on the Russians that these sort of kamikaze tactics, which are, are reminiscent of men being sent over the top of trenches in world in the First World War, running at well-fortified Ukrainian positions with nothing more than basic firearms, and in some cases, and as some reports are, uh, shovels to engage in hand-to-hand combat it's not going particularly well from them and potentially maybe that reality has come come to bite the commanders on the backside if their men really are sort of having this uh, mutiny then i'll stop there for now thanks very much for that joe can we also talk about a video that i think many people listening will have seen doing the rounds online uh, yesterday it shows a a Ukrainian prisoner of war basically gunned down in cold blood. He smokes a cigarette, says Slava Ukraina, glory to Ukraine, before being executed and shot in the head. It's obviously caused a huge um, reaction online um, ac- across the world. Joe, we th- this story has developed somewhat. I think we we found out who this who this man is. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. So this is um, this particular story is one that we led out kind of battlefield wrap on in the Telegraph newspaper today. And as David described perfectly, there was this soldier, Ukrainian soldier, he had a you know, Ukraine flag on his epaulet, a Velcro, a Velcro patch there on it. And he was standing in this clearing in a forest, believed to be east of Ukraine in occupied territory. And he was asked to remove the Ukrainian flag from his uniform and instead said, Slava Ukraine. So glory to Ukraine, and was gunned down in multiple directions. But Kiev has actually um, named the Ukrainian soldier as a Timothy Shadura of the 30th Separate Mechanized Brigade. So the video went viral. Quite a number of Ukrainian personnel that I follow on social media were sharing it. And he was this chap was hailed as a martyr. And what we know is now we can tell you that, yeah, he was, he was apparently allegedly gunned down by Russians, which... Ukraine are pushing for kind of, uh, yeah, they're, they're using this as yet another example of war crimes being committed. Uh, killing or harming a prisoner of war is against the Geneva Convention. So if if this is legitimate, as Ukraine says, then yeah, Russia looks incredibly guilty of having committed a war crime and Ukrainian officials have vowed to go after those responsible for it. Um, but what we what we know is now is, uh, yes, in yesterday's report, we couldn't confirm where Timothy Shadura had been captured, where he'd been fighting. But now we know, uh, thanks to people in Kyiv who have come out and said that he went missing around February the 3rd while fighting in Bakhmut. And um, they now say his body's been held in occupied territory in the Donbass and that their officials are trying to negotiate the return of his body in a twinned approach to pushing those war crimes, investigations and prosecutions against whoever may have been responsible for this, whether it be genuine Russian fighters, separatists, or maybe members of the Wagner group. And what we do know is moments like this, it uh, hails back to that moment going uh, way, way, way back now, over over a year to, to Snake Island when um, F-off Russian warship became so prominent. It's moments like this where the Ukrainian community really do get behind their own and use use their kind of wounded or killed fighters, defenders, to boost morale and, and carry on pushing when the times are tough. And as he was captured and taken prisoner around Bakhmut, that's that's likely to give the fighters in Bakhmut extra emphasis to carry on their defence of the town. And I'll stop there. Thanks um, very much for that, Joe. I believe we do have our guest, Daria, who's calling in from Warsaw. Um, Daria, could you tell us just a bit about yourself and your life prior to February 2022? And, and what happened at the outbreak of the full in, in, full-scale invasion in your life? Well, my life has changed a lot since last year. Domestically, I would say 
I had a normal life. I used to live in Kiev. I was a co-founder of language school. And then on the 24th, I had to pack, take my son and my cats and just leave Kiev. And that day I remember as if it was yesterday, even though it was a year ago. So I, I, I came to my parents' town and just took my mom and three of us went by car to nearest border, which was Moldova. And then it took us 10 days to get from Moldova throughout four countries to Poland. I speak Polish, so I decided that Poland would be the best place for us to go. And especially on the way when we were in Romania, my mom had heart issues because of all the stress. And we ended up in hospital where no one could speak English or <laughs> Russian or Ukrainian. And then I realized how important it is to be in the country where you can actually speak the language, especially in the situation where you are in the hospital. So we came to Poland and I was very lucky to, I just went to school to sign up my son to, to school, to have normal life, to return to education. And as you know, this, this stability and this routine, it's the most important for children to be back after all the trauma that they've gone through. And uh, after hiding in, um, in basements, bomb-proof shelters, overnight, it was so difficult for us. And we just came to Poland. And my first day, I went to school to sign up my son. And I just uh, heard about kitchen program sponsored by CARE. And as a teacher, I, I just... I simultaneously had both. I signed up my son and I had a job. So it was a lucky day for me. And I was working in school, helping Ukrainian children adjusting to Polish education system and just to new life. Because when you think about someone who has gone through so much, especially in such a young age and who else would understand this person better than someone who, who had gone through exactly the same. So it was my helping them. It was just a feeling of, you know, unity with children and just getting back to normal, to normal life, to, to normality, if, if we can say that. And so, then... Oh, sorry, sorry, mm -hmm. please. And then I, uh, after the school year was over, I joined CARE and now I'm working as the communications officer at uh, CARE Poland. And now I'm helping other Ukrainian refugees, mostly women and children, getting used to new life. And we are doing different projects to, to just help Ukrainian women with their children. Can I ask, as a Polish speaker, what what would you say has been the Ukrainian experience in Poland? I mean, we saw we, we know that mil, you know hundreds of thousands of of Ukrainians have gone to Poland. What what has their life um, experiences been like over the past year? How, how have you seen um, your compatriots uh, deal with with the issues of, as you said, moving to to a new country? And um, after that, maybe do tell us a little bit more about the projects you're running with uh, Ukrainian women and and their children. I think it's very difficult to, in general to move to another country. But when you think about packing your life in one suitcase within 20 minutes and taking your child and going to a completely different country, it's very difficult. And for many women I've talked to, they, they are in Poland for the first time. They don't speak the language and they have to not just adjust to new life, but also to look for a job, to sign children to school, to look for apartments, to to handle all the problems that they have. And it's been one year. And for many of people who had who had come first and those who came later, for it's even worse because people are in worse financial situation because of one year of the war. For many people, there is no home to return. For some people I've talked to, they said that it's not just that my home is damaged or destroyed. There is not my, my whole city, my entire 
city is destroyed, so there is nowhere to return for them. And of course, of course, it influences emotional state and both with, as I mentioned, financial. So it's not an easy life for sure for Ukrainian uh, refugees uh, in, in Poland and in other countries as well. That's why it's so important to continue helping and to continue just working and trying to make their lives easier. I would say that among other activities that uh, we are doing there, tomorrow is International Women's Day. So if um, I may, I will, I, I can just say that I will be also, uh, there is this Walk for Women initiative from CARE International, and we will have a podcast hosted by Sophie Alex Baxter and Helen Pankhurst. And there we will have amazing women around the world telling their stories and empowering and just showing their leadership in crisis. For many women, it is important to see that, you know, light to this uh, example of someone who had gone through difficulties in lives, but who had also succeeded. So I think it's also very important to just not only to, sh of course, all the programs that we are doing, we have uh, financial support as well as accommodation, legal support, psychosocial support. This is all super important for a person who is coming to a new place and who has to just start living again, but also encouraging and helping women to feel strong in such a difficult situation, I think it's also very important. So being part of the community, being part of the moves that, especially on some holiday, on, on the days like International Women's Day, I think it's also very important to be, because I remember with one woman I've talked and she said that just having a talk, just sharing the experience is also important because many women have gone through so much that they just wanted to to share it and it's good to be part of organization where we can hear those voices when where we can meet people and being part of it it feels just amazing to me i'm i'm very glad i am you know part of a care and doing such such a job just Dari, would you be able to just give us a few ex examples of some of these stories of, of the women and, and also their children that you've spoken to? I mean, you mentioned how um, there are many Ukrainian children now at Polish schools. And how do they get over the trauma of what they went through and what's their life like now? Well, I think I can speak uh, for children that I know personally from the school that I used to work. They have changed a lot. I remember the first day I came, there was not a single smile on their faces. People, children were just completely stressed and being in a new place in unknown school. Unknown, everything was new to them. Of course, it was very difficult. But eventually, they they got used to and the school with, chill, with teachers and this work of uh, assistant teacher a Ukrainian teacher, it helps a lot. Children, they open, they start smiling more. They uh, liked the system, the school system in general. Polish children, they showed so much friendship and so much compassion towards Ukrainians. I remember they would approach uh, during the breaks to Ukrainian kids, giving some small presents like pants or stickers or just some some small things, but they just wanted, this was just a beginning of conversation. They tried to get to know to children and also to be just friendly. And it also, it helped a lot. This friendly atmosphere, it breaks all the ice between, you know, different children of different countries. So I can tell, and the same, my son, he's been going to, to this school this is his second year of Polish school, and he likes it a lot. He has made Polish friends already, as well as Ukrainian, of course. So he likes it, and he says that he wants to continue going to the same school. And if we talk about Ukrainian women, in my opinion, 
all the women that I've met are incredible, strong, and just, you know, they they show so much. You can see this leadership in, in each of them because taking your child and, and just starting from scratch, it requires a lot of, you know, power. And I could say that the story that impressed me most is a woman who lived in uh, a small town of uh, Przemyshel at the border of uh, Poland. And she's Ukrainian and she lives there with her two, ch two children, two girls. And she was part of the community, of Ukrainian community. And one day there was, in the beginning, in uh, March, there was this family of single mom with her daughter who came to Przemyshel. And unfortunately, the mom felt bad she was hospitalized and she was later diagnosed with cancer and she passed away so the girl was teenage girl was in a foreign country without parents complete orphan and this woman who is from ukrainian community she adopted the girl she took her in her home and i've talked to her recently and she said the girl is functioning now she started smiling she started again being after going through so much she is now she has hope for future she wants to continue her life in Poland so these are just small stories you know of simple women who who work who do, who do their daily jobs but then when this war broke out everything has changed a lot of Ukrainians who used to live who used to have their lives, they they first became refugees, then they started being volunteers, and now they are part of community helping other refugees. So this is so inspiring how people, Ukrainian and Polish women, stand together in this crisis and help each other and encourage each other. And just, I have so many stories, I can tell a lot, but you know how women change and how life has changed for them, but they still keep strong. And this is inspiring for me. Well, maybe tell, tell us a couple more at the end of this, but just quickly, you, you, I mean, you described leaving Ukraine and going to Poland, but you returned to Ukraine recently to visit, to visit your family. What, what was that experience like for you? And, and how are they, how is your family doing now? So my, uh, my trip to Ukraine was short, but very happy moment because it was my first time over a year in at home at my hometown I went to visit my grandma who is 84 years old she decided not to go with us we we wanted to come her to come with us we encourage her every day to come to Poland but for elderly people it is so difficult to change the position to change home to leave the garden and everything that they have. So I respect her choice not to go, but of course it was difficult to leave her. And it was so great to to get back together, to see her again, to spend time with her and just to have the small chats, small talks and to return to normal, to to the feeling that that used to be. And my father, he is also, he is, he could have come with us because he is above this age rate where people can go, but he decided to stay in my native town, Kreminchuk, and just to, to join territorial defense of the city and to defend the city. And again, I can, I'm very proud of him that he is doing this, especially in his age, but and I am also very afraid for him. I worry all the day for my grandma and my dad, and we keep in touch every day. But of course, it's not the same when you see someone over a year. Yeah, it was very emotional. And even now, when I remember about it, you know, my, I don't know if you can hear that, but my voice is trembling because it's, it was such a great time being again but again knowing that I have to go back that it's not safe it just breaks my heart to be away from my family and not being able to return at the moment and you asked about the stories of women there are so many stories 
For example, I know one uh, woman, Olga, who is leader of uh, a feminist organization, and she conducts self-defense classes for for Ukrainian women. And just, uh, again, she gathers people and she... She said that last year the organization that she ran was so small, so little, and now they have every day, they have activities, they join together, they have workshops, they they support each other. This is the most important in such a difficult situation. They have psychological support for, for women. Other... Other Olga, who is in Warsaw, the, the one I've talked about is in Krakow, in Warsaw. She's uh, just, she's worker of um, uh, information hub. She is Ukrainian who, who also speaks Polish fluently so she can help Ukrainian refugees just sign up for medical assistance or for any other assistance. She, she knows the system well so she can help them. There are so many women who just who are now part of you know this huge big family of assisting and just being the the, the most important in my opinion and now during this uh, difficult period of time is to be together to stay uh, together and to support each other so this is this is a goal i think just one more question from me, Daria. But you, you mentioned your your grandmother. Your grandmother survived World War Two, survived famine. Um, I was just wondering your 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 thoughts about how she sees this invasion and her experiences, and how you talk to her about that. If 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 you if if it's not too painful to talk about that, that that would be interesting. My grandmother is a very strong woman. She she is a big example for me how to be strong and i remember when we were just recently talking to her and yes you she has gone through famine and uh, her younger sister died during famine and during second world war she was a young girl and she remembers little bit of it and i remember she was saying i was my biggest hope was for my children not to see the war and unfortunately, it's not happening. And her biggest fear was the same because she has gone through World War II. She knows what it is to be in war. And unfortunately, now at her age, she has to go through it again. But because she has gone through so much in her life, she's very strong. And she just encouraged me. She, she tells me, well, if there won't be food, I will, I can just, eat less <laughs> or she she finds solution to all the situations she doesn't give up and she just tells me that it's it's going to be okay we will stand and the war will end one day we will all hope very soon and she also told me that her biggest dream right now is to live till the end of the war to see the the, the end of the war to see the victory of ukraine that that is her biggest dream right now. Daria, is there anything um, we haven't spoken about that you'd want our listeners uh, to hear? I would also say I want to take a moment to just thank everyone who have helped Ukrainians all over in all the countries, in UK, in Poland, everywhere, because this help that you have given, it's it's huge. It feels, for some people, it might feel small, but for Ukrainians, it, for, it's, it's huge, it's enormous. And I can say that we are very grateful for everything that the world is doing to support Ukraine at the moment. And, of course, for supporting CARES work, you are supporting Ukrainian refugees here in Poland, in UK, and in other countries. So this is the only thing. Thank you for supporting us thank you for talking about ukraine this is also very important
Well, thank you very much, Daria, for your time. We'll come back to you for a final thought. But before, but before Joe, can I come to you just um, just because I know Dom will be coming in shortly, I think, just with his updates. But you've written a piece on... Well, I think we've all seen this. There are some rather odd images going around, which we've seen on sort of the Ossent community and social media, of really strange-looking Russian armoured vehicles. I mean, I don't necessarily right now want to get into the debate of whether it's a tank or not a tank. I think we might need to wait for Dom to make that judgment. But we saw some... We've seen some of these these images, and they're, they're really quite odd. They're sort of... Well, the bottom half, it's very, very difficult to do this in audio, really, isn't it? But the bottom half is like an armoured vehicle. And then there's a tall conical turret at the back with with cannon sort of poking out of it. We've never really seen anything like this before, I think, in, 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 in certainly in this invasion, in this war. Joe, you've been looking at this. What what have you found? I really hope I've done sort of done justice to, to the visual description of these of, of these machines. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of when we can also thank our lucky stars that we have Dom at our disposal to help with the weaponry on display. But yeah, this um, particular piece of kit that we have seen floating around Twitter and Telegram and whatever social medias people want to use, I've seen it on Instagram, on YouTube, wherever, essentially shows that Russia has welded or is welding aging naval turrets onto old armoured vehicles to essentially make new battlefield equipment for Ukraine what it tells us is possibly the most one of the most glaring signs is that Russia is generally running out of kit because of losses on the battlefield in Ukraine it's running out of ammunition because it's expended so much and just the fact that because they have very few allies in the world that are capable of giving them kit unlike Ukraine which has seen Sort of Western-made battle tanks, the British Challenger, the German Leopard. Eventually, we'll see the American Abrams on in Ukraine. We don't know when that's going to come, but it will come eventually. Where Russia doesn't have that kind of shoulder to lean on. And so, what we saw with this sort of Tankenstein vehicle is um, a footage from an undisclosed location. It appears to show this 25 millimeter dual or twin-barreled naval anti-aircraft turret fitted onto a Soviet-era amphibious fighting vehicle. The contraption, which from people I spoke to said could could uh, have been produced as early as 1945, it was being, the contraption was being transported by rail, which indicates that it is being taken to Ukraine. That's how Russia so often moves items into Ukraine. It's how Ukraine moves Western weapons into Ukraine. It's, it's, the, it's the main the main sort of logistical method. But let's look why Russia is trying to bolt on a naval anti-aircraft turret onto an amphibious vehicle. It's likely because the Russian ground forces are so battle-stricken and so depleted that Ukraine doesn't... Oh, sorry, Russia doesn't actually have good stockpiles of kit used by their conventional land forces. They're having to now look at other parts of their military where they can take stuff from. They've identified this 25mm gun, which was probably likely originally strapped to a naval patrol vessel. And that's likely because the Russian Navy hasn't taken the, the Moskva flagship of the Black Sea fleet aside, hasn't taken that much of a beating. So they probably have an abundance of ammunition and an abundance of these turrets that they can pull apart and then turn into land weapons. Um, it's likely that the naval the the naval turret on the amphibious vehicle will be deployed or not on the actual front line or in in Ukraine. It will probably be used on one of the quiet parts, which will enable them to move actually legitimate ground fighting it to the front line and the busier parts. It would likely be used to fire at drones. The drones have been more prominent in the war in Ukraine as kind of the months go on. And we we, we speak a lot about the Iranian-made drones, the Shahids, being used by Russia. But actually now Ukraine is deploying kamikaze drones, loitering munitions, whatever we want to call them more effectively. It's, it's, it's making its own kamikaze drones out of commercially commercially available UAVs and stuff like that. So potentially this is what this is being used for. But I spoke to a few people, a few former 
tank operators in the British Army and Sir Justin Crump, who now runs Sibylline, an intelligence and geopolitical risk firm, he said, yep, we highly suspect this is being improvised in Hamish Breton Gordon, uh, a regular contributor to the podcast and the Telegraph newspaper. And he, he said the fact that a supposed First World Army is cobbling together different bits of kit, not too dissimilar to terrorist organizations, organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, hopefully shows the perilous state of the Russian army. And he actually sent me some pictures via WhatsApp of similar contraptions where they were Russian BMPs that were captured by ISIS and then overhauled by ISIS to have turrets on top of them. So it's it's interesting to see that the state of the Russian military looks like it has degraded to a level where they rely on producing these Tankensteins creature vehicles as if they were jihadis fighting in the Middle East and not the second army of the world. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much for that, Joe. I just want to put the sort of the opposite side to you that, I mean, on, on the one hand, of course, this shows desperation. It, it's it's moving away from some of the more produced and the, the T-series tanks that we're used to, used to seeing on the battlefield. Could you could you say that although it might be desperate, it does show a, a sense of the Russian army learning? I can see Hamish de Breton Gordon listening actually, so I sort of wonder what he thinks about this. But that of learning, of reacting to events, of actually in, in the same way that we've seen we've seen Ukrainian troops, you know, zooming about on the back of quad bites with with, with anti tank weapons or turning Mitsubishi trucks into mobile rocket launchers. It might not. This might not look pretty. It, well, it looks rather ridiculous, but. Does, does that matter at the end of the day if if actually it, it does the effect you're asking it to do? In Ukraine, we were in Krivivri, in the centre of Ukraine. I visited a secret factory that was converting these pickup trucks, whether they be Mitsubishi or Toyota or whatever brand of car that you fancy driving, uh, into these kind of mobile grad launchers. So we, 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 we've seen these kind of ingenious creations using ingenuity on the battlefield. The the Ukrainians have shown it beautifully, uh, and it's not a new idea of using sort of drones to drop grenades, but they have taken commercially purchasable DJI drones, which we can buy on any sort of high street in Britain or Europe, and they've added these little kind of grenade droppers or item droppers, which can be bought on AliExpress, a Chinese marketplace, or in most cases now 3D printed inside Ukraine, to convert them into into lethal weapons. And so if the Russians, I, I, I doubt it's going to be a game changer in terms of taking territory back, but if the Russians can deploy their own weaponry that hasn't been used because it's naval rather than land orientated, yeah, they might they might be able to operate it to a certain level where it gives them not an edge, but it, it, will, it will help them achieve some of their goals. And if that goal from what this looks like is to blow... Uh, Ukrainian drones out of the sky, then yeah, that, that yeah, it could it could well happen. But I don't. It's not going to be a game changer, like for instance when anti-air missiles are being strapped onto the back of vans and stuff like that to give uh, Ukraine better mobility and kind of better firepower to defend their skies. I think in terms of who is winning the improvisation war, it's definitely Ukraine. Uh, but I, I guess Russia sees it as no harm in trying, especially when they are so desperate desperately in need of, of stockpiles. Because as, as you mentioned, we've seen on the battlefield uh, multiple, multiple, multiple cases of upgraded T-62 tanks being deployed by Russia, which are 60 years old, um, with just slightly better armour than when they were being walked around. And yeah, so look, it's, it's one of those things. Russia will probably be able to use it to a certain extent, but it's not going to be a game changer. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Joe. Uh, we've got Hamish de Breton Gordon joining us, and Dom Nichols, I see, has arrived from his briefing. Just before we go to Dom, Hamish, we wanted to bring you on. Thank you for listening. We wanted to bring you on just because of uh, what Joe was saying about these Tankenstein, as we've dubbed it, these Tankenstein vehicles that have been spotted in heading towards, we think, heading towards the front for the Russians. What can you tell us about them? And uh, have you seen them before, and were they effective? Well, good, good afternoon, David, Joe and Tom. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I, I was uh, w- when Joe and I spoke yesterday, and we saw the pictures. Um, I, I was really surprised, and I went back through my photo. For two years, I was the Peshmerga's chemical weapons advisor in the fight with ISIS, sort of 2015, 2017, and uh, we came across very similar looking 
BMP uh, chassis with these turrets stuck on the back. The ISIS had basically put sort of heavy machine guns in them. They, they were pretty crude, but looked very similar to, to these Tankenstein, what appear to be anti-drone guns that have been mounted on them. Very thin-skinned, as it were. And and I agree with, with, with Joe and, and the other thesis on this. The, these look like Navy turrets, basically fairly low-caliber machine guns in these turrets. The idea is to put as much lead in the air as possible to knock the drones down. I mean, when I was with the Peshmerga, we had great difficulty taking down ISIS drones, which were actually very, very small ones, but would fire thousands of rounds of small arms ammunition. But uh, these Navy gun turrets should be more effective. I expect it is, to me, it's a bit of a mass game, a numbers game. I expect that uh, the army gunners, the air defenders, the Russians, you know, they're running out of numbers. So it sort of makes sense to take naval gunners and and their turrets and put them on some sort of vehicle. Whether they're going to be effective or not, I would be surprised. I mean, they'd be very vulnerable, as I say, although they're on BMP chassis, they're, they're very lightly armoured. And, um, you, you know, to be effective against the drones, they're going to have to be pretty pretty close to the front line, I expect, unless they're used to protect the sort of uh, logistics hubs in the background but to me and i really i think i hold with with quoted in joe's piece today that this does little smack of desperation to me i mean you, you could argue that it's it's innovation but um you know i i would not want to be one of those naval gunners operating those guns in any way so another another step hopefully in the demise of the russian army Thank you, Hamish. Dom, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to comment on this first? Uh, it's, I mean, it's quite special. It's, it's quite good for us, really, that we've got two people who've worked worked um, with tanks on this. Hamish has given his piece. What's your reaction when you saw these pictures? Uh, yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Sorry I was late in a, in a briefing there. My reaction, first of all, is I'm delighted to be able to pick up Hamish on a, on a mistake as a former former tactics instructor. It, well, it's not a BMP chassis, Hamish. It's an MTLB. Mrs Thatcher's little little bruiser, I think, you used to, used to teach or something like that. Anyway, innovation... Yes, uh, good. I mean, we had Hobart's funnies, didn't we, in the Second World War? Was he a general? Uh, Hamish, I think it was general, general. Tank general Hob- Ho- Hobart, who was who was no, directed. Well, I mean, you, you would need to take over. But Hobart was directed to come and use his imagination, come up with some weird and wonderful vehicles to uh, to come up with a whole different range of a range of applications, and so. And he did, and there's all sorts of, uh, and some of them came through into into use, operational use, and others others didn't because they were just crazy ideas. But so innovation is is good. We see Ukraine been very good at that over the last well last year. Obviously, this is the first real bit of innovation I think we've seen from Russia. And as Hamish has said, it's pretty clunky. It's very vulnerable. I mean, I'd hate to think what the center of gravity is on that thing. But but yeah, I mean, fine. We'll see, we'll, we'll see how they do. It's an immediate response to a to a. A tactical problem, as you said, of getting getting lead in the air to, to knock down drones. So fine, let let let's see what happens. But I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be a an absolute game changer. Um, but yeah, and it and it smacks of. I mean, as all innovation does to a certain level, smacks of a bit of bit of desperation. I mean, you don't just come up with these ideas and go to the extent of of putting these things together um, for the sake of it. Obviously, you are denuding the capability of the two component parts. You're hoping that the the sum is greater than the than the parts, so we we shall see. But no, it does it does speak of of a level of a level of of needing to do it, a level of of desperation, not just uh, innovation for innovation's sake. Russians haven't been particularly on the front foot when it comes to using their imagination, trying to get over a tactical problem, and and just and just thinking around an issue. This I think has been driven by desperation. Thanks, Tom. You've just come out of a briefing with a Western official. What did they tell you? What more can you throw light on for us? So the focus, the main focus of the, of the talk was about Bakhmut and the um, any operational and strategic significance there. And the the view from the Western official was was no, it's 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 a tactical event. There is no operational strategic significance for either side. It was described as a sound tactic from the Ukrainian point of view. There are a lot of Russians being killed. The quote was, it's a quote, unique opportunity to kill a lot of Russians. It's also thrown up some fissures in the Russian side. We've seen Yevgeny Prigozhin talking about his need for more artillery, saying he's, there's a, what do you call it, there's shell hunger, or he's, you know, he's feeling a bit uh, um, 
left out to dry a little bit. Casualty figures, always very difficult to to estimate, but the Western official was suggesting that there have been 20 to 30,000 Russian casualties, so casualty being killed in action, wounded in action, missing and captured. So 20 to 30,000 Russian casualties over the entire time of the fighting back moot, which is like seven or eight months now. I mean, that is a that is a huge number, 20, 20 to 30,000 out of, we think the latest estimate is about 200,000 Russian casualties all told. So, you know, about a tenth of the of the entire casualty figure in one very small piece of the battlefield. Significantly less, that's the quote, significantly less Ukrainian casualties, but no figure. They think Western officials were suggesting that Ukraine has about three brigades worth. So brigade being a couple of thousand people, depending on the on the role of the brigade, exactly if it's if it's armor heavy, if it's infantry, what its role is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But about about uh, two thousand people in each. So three brigades from Ukraine and significantly more from Russia and and Wagner. Now the official was saying that Russia has fired not just in Bakhmut but across the whole of the war. Russia's fired tens of millions of artillery shells and there are supply problems but there's not a quantity problem and we've seen that recently with T62's tanks which as the name suggests was designed back in the 60s. T62's being rolled out. So they are I mean they're not they're not fit for purpose. This again is again it's not not innovation, it's more desperation. They've got quantity, but they've got not got the quality, and they don't have a reserve. They don't have any mass reserve. There's certainly not nothing. Nobody really trained. There's this idea that are there. There've been reports of Russian um, brigades, very well equipped and trained brigades in reserve. That doesn't seem to be the case. There are troops available, whether or not they are in reserve, i.e., they can get to a problem quickly to stem a gap in the line where Ukraine breaks through or exploit a success. That doesn't seem to be the case. They, Russia has got has got troops available that they can. Do, they are just pushing forward slowly and incrementally into the line. So no no reserve force as such. And uh, down in Vuladar, so further to the south, further south and back, moot. The suggestion was that that Russia has culminated there. Culmination being that you're not necessarily going backwards, but you're not able to go forwards anymore. You're not able to carry on offensive action. So it looks like Russia has culminated around Vuladar. It was an objective for Gerasimov's new new um, offensive when Gerasimov took over. He, he was clearly given his orders by Putin to, to go and win the war, basically, and they've not pushed forward anywhere. And in Vuladar, there, there have been, this has been reported elsewhere, but it was confirmed by the Western official, there have been reports of Russian units just refusing to fight saying we are we are not doing this anymore that was the quote from from the western official they're just these these are these tactics of of a very well the defense secretary ben wallace called them human wave of just pushing people forward finding gaps in the line then pushing more people through those gaps that just that's not particularly appetizing for um for the third and fourth ranks if you if you know what i mean so some russian units are just refusing to fight now the Rus- the wagner death rate seems to be a lot higher than the regular Russian forces. Now, whether or not this is Prigozhin trying to seek some sort of political advantage out of a great battlefield success, which is yet to materialise, or if it's that the, they've been recruiting from prisons, we don't know, but the, the, but the death rate seems to be a lot higher there. And Wagner in total, the, the sort of Wagner effort here, it, they seem to have advanced about 25Ks from when they first came into the fight in a, in a formed unit themselves, if you know what I mean, a, a portion of the battlefield that was that was given to them so they started around the around the town of Papagena and uh, they've been western officials said relatively unsuccessful since then they've covered about 25 k's but a lot of that's open ground there've been no ukrainian defensive lines really in that area so they covered 25 kilometers and then got snarled up around Bakhmut so Wagner's not really done a huge amount on the battlefield we we see Prigozhin increasingly animated they are thought to be running out of prisoners and running out of artillery, so his idea of of some great yeah i don't i don 't think he cares particularly for his fighters, what he wants is a result, and the chances of that result coming anytime soon is looking less and less likely and then just finally it 's looking like the next month or so next month or two when we we'll we'll start to see major Ukrainian combined arms exercises going on probably in Poland and Germany. So this is, they are currently being trained, Ukrainian troops being trained outside of the country as as infantry and air defenders and, and um, to operate tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and so on and so forth. The next level up is when you put, put those component parts together 
and you start fighting as a as what's called a combined arms army that will be the next next sort of milestone if you like that we'll be able to observe to see to see them moving towards being able to field a credible fighting force um, because of course we, they don't want to do what we're seeing russia do which is get some new kit get some new people bung them into the fight see what happens hope for the best it doesn't work that way so Ukraine aided and and supplied and to a certain extent guided from other nations outside are are build are doing it properly. I mean they're trying to build an army from scratch, but they're doing it properly. It takes time, which they are trying to shorten those time those timelines. But it's looking like the next month or so before we see the next the next big stepping stone, which is combined arms training. Like I say, probably Poland and Germany. Uh, and that was it. That was about it from the from the Western official for today. Thank you very much. Uh, Dom and Joe, what are your final thoughts? Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Thanks. I'll just point out that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is in Poland now, travelling to Ukraine this evening. We're told he's going to meet President Zelensky tomorrow. His spokesman said, going to meet President Zelensky tomorrow, quote, to discuss the continuation of the Black Sea Grain Initiative in all its aspects, as well as other pertinent issues, unquote. So, hmm, not quite the ringing endorsement that they're going to talk about a permanent member of the UN Security Council violating international law, riding across borders and killing loads of people in a disgusting and illegal war. But hopefully, hopefully the UN Secretary General, this is his third visit to Kiev, hopefully he will um, step up this time. I'm not a massive fan of the UN, as you probably know. I just I just want them to, to do something here rather than, just, I mean, grain is important, but I think there's there's a lot of else to be spoken about as well. And I don't think they should be bracketed under other pertinent issues. But there we go. Thanks, Tom. Joe Barnes. We've kind of used up my final thoughts. Uh, I was going to speak about let's look at the EU joint procurement. So I would look on our reporting on that in the coming days. But then, um, yeah, just going back to, to back, but there's a there's an interesting um, one of the Ukraine's vice prime ministers has said that there's only 4,000 civilians left in back, and 36 of those are children. We often um, speak about the military struggle over the town, but there's probably a moment for us to reflect those who have either opted not to leave because they don't want to or or those who have not been able to able to leave what is sort of the main fighting conflict zone on the front line at the moment so it's a it's it's an interesting one to see um how and if ukraine can manage to get the civilians out we know um recently that humanitarian efforts to get those out have kind of been suspended. Ukraine recommended against journalists and humanitarian groups going into Bakhmut. So um yeah, there's it's 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 still it remains very hairy and it's it's one to think about looking forward, not just the soldiers on the front line, but also the civilians that are living there. Thank you very much, Dom and Joe. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon. Thank you. Just a very quick one. I just want to advertise General Percy Hobart who Dom mentioned, is one of these lateral, unconventional thinkers that made the British military what it was and what it is today. Commissioned as a Royal Engineer, sensibly then became a Royal Tank Regiment officer, but it was actually retired at the beginning of the Second World War by General Wavell for his unconventional ideas. But the other great military thinker, Little Hart, Sir Basil Little Hart, I understand, convinced Churchill that this man should be back in the military. Churchill insisted that he was. He then went on to command 79 Armoured Brigade. But again, as Don mentioned, the Hobart Funnies, a lot of those vehicles that enabled the Normandy landings and the attack across Europe were Hobart's Funnies, the um, the Churchill Crocodile Flamethrower, various tank ploughs and amphibious tanks. So, you know, a really, really incredible person and uh, well worth a quick sort of Google to get his background. Thanks. Thanks, Dom, Joe and Hamish. Daria, can I come to you as our guest for the very final thoughts of this episode? Thank you, David. I would say that my final thought would be to just greet all the women around the world with upcoming International Women's Day. And I would say to women who are now displaced, who are people who are refugees in, in the countries to be strong and just to have hope to know that there will be better days and they will come very soon. Thank you for having me here. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe 
to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Emily Hill.